The book of Leviticus teaches us that the ultimate joy for which we are created is communion in the presence of the living God. Leviticus also reminds us and reveals that the ultimate horror a human being can experience is separation from God's presence. Now, we're not taught that in our culture. We may not think about this as much as we should. But the book of Leviticus helps to straighten our thinking and to recognize it is dwelling in the presence of God. It is communing with Him. That is our ultimate joy and separation from God that is our ultimate sorrow. To commune with God, Leviticus insists that we approach God on His terms. In holiness that flows from His provision of forgiveness. To the contrary, Leviticus warns of the judgment that results when we defy God or approach Him on our own terms. This is danger zone. Leviticus is helping us in this divine drama to see this, to recognize this. Last week we looked at chapter 23 and the role that sacred time played in Israel's fellowship with God. The Sabbath observances, if you can kind of think through the book, We've seen the place of the sacrifices, dying in the place of the sinner, the purification rituals that bring sinners into the presence of God at the tabernacle. His dwelling there among people and the purification and the approach to God. And then that approach, that communion in the presence of God at the tabernacle is to trickle out into everyday life as our lives are transformed to be holy lives. This we find in the drama of Leviticus. And here we are, gathered again on this Lord's Day as Jesus' church, pursuing this same fundamental agenda. We have set aside our daily routines. We've set them aside and come here and done something that we don't do often. Once every seven days in this unique way, gathering here as the body of Christ, as His people, knowing that He uses this discipline in our lives to purify us. He uses this discipline to make us holy. Our assembly is indeed, as we think of it, not only this project of meeting in His presence and being sanctified by it, but we could just turn it a different way and say that it's a stunning display of God's sovereign grace and redemptive plan. Here we are assembled in the glow of His presence as His people worshiping His name reverently but without fear. What wonders God has wrought through the centuries for His people. Communing together in God's presence is no given. Travel back in your mind's eye to Mount Sinai, Exodus 19. God's presence descends atop the mountain. It wraps Sinai in these billows of smoke. The fire of God's presence illumines the cloud from within, creating undoubtedly an eerie glow as the people looked up at this mountain as it were on fire. A sustained and unnerving trumpet blast grows louder and louder and troubles people to their very soul. God's voice thunders and the mountain shakes. 
and so do the people. God warns Moses. It's so serious. Death is in the offing if we do not hear God's voice, and yet there's almost humor in it. Don't let anyone touch this mountain. There's no real danger of that. God's people are shaking and quaking with fear. They're not going to touch this mountain. They're far more likely to run away. God is here, and it is frightening. But as God works out His salvation plan, He speaks there on that mountain with Moses, and He sends Moses back down the mountain, and He communes with His people, and then... In something that they would never have anticipated, God's holy presence that shook this mountain comes down and dwells among them in a tent. In the tabernacle of meeting, God's glory fills the place. And so the question of Leviticus again, how do God's people meet with Him here? It's the same God on the mountain. It's the same One who's created the universe. It's the One whose holiness is so profound, so deep. Should we step into His presence in our sin, we would die. How do we approach this God? Leviticus works that out for us, moving up to chapter 16 and the Day of Atonement and the cleansing and the purification and the ritual that is necessary to approach a holy God. But that holiness flows back into the community, to the people. It doesn't stay at the tabernacle. And we've come to chapter 23 as we finish this last week to the consideration of sacred time with all of the ritual that is here helping us to understand who God is and how we approach Him, we come to sacred time and the Sabbaths of chapter 23, the weekly Sabbaths every seven days to stop work and to commune in the presence of God. The festivals also referred to as Sabbaths, times of rest, times of reflection, times of standing in the presence of God. And as we put chapter 23 with chapter 25, we find the same theme of sacred time with chapter 24 seeming like an absolute interruption, an insertion that makes utterly no sense coming here at this place, other than by this point in time, Moses has convinced us over and over again he does nothing by accident. Reading these texts in the Hebrew particularly, as we work through Genesis and Exodus, it is clear that this is a genius at work. The beauty of the structure, the key words that sometimes miss us in English, this man knows what he's doing. You would say as you read chapter 24, it just seems like he got lost somewhere. He's not lost. 23, 25 are in a sense the setting of the diamond of 24. What seems so ill-fitted is the diamond in the crown of 23 and 25. We come then to 24, understanding this, the Sabbaths described in 23, the Sabbaths of years described in 25, 
we have this insertion, 24 and verse 1, from inside the tent. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony, in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. We have degrees of familiarity with the tabernacle. There may be some here. You say, what's the tabernacle? But we need to get to know it. And you need to get to know it to understand the Bible, the Old Testament, but also the New Testament. It's critical that we understand this tent. This uniquely designed by God tabernacle where His glory has come to dwell and where His people may approach Him. I was looking at this book this week that, that talked about trying to give people an understanding of the overview of the Bible and how to understand the whole Bible and its flow in a fairly simple format. And it started off in the beginning and it said, you're going to need this to understand the Bible and it gave us maps. Here's where the things took place, the history took place. So you've got to have these maps to understand the Bible as we begin to s- describe it. You know what else was there? A picture of the tabernacle. Isn't that interesting? You've got to know where things are, and you've got to know the tabernacle. If you don't know the tabernacle, you're really at a loss to see a lot of the things, even that the New Testament says. Now, this isn't a photograph, I'll admit. It's obviously coming out of a book, isn't it? And I like the picture, though, because it shows the surrounding camp of Israelites at Mount Sinai, perhaps. You see the billow of smoke down inside the glory of God the presence of God and Israel approaching Him at this tabernacle on His terms. Now what we've been looking at here, there's the tabernacle in the middle, what we've been looking at here now from a bird's eye view and just trying to get a sense of the layout of the furniture that is there, each with very significant uh, meaning, symbolism. We have the table with bread on it on the right side as the priest would enter in at the altar of burnt offering, then the laver, that sea with water in it, and then entering into the holy place, there is on the right side the table with bread, and on the left side a lampstand. We're looking here obviously in verses 1 through 4 at the lampstand. Now, if we, we look at these two pieces then, there right is the lampstand. This would be a cutaway if you're not familiar with the tabernacle. This would all have been veiled to sight from somebody on the outside, but kind of cutting it away, looking inside. There on the left would be the lampstand, and there on the right, the table of the bread of God's presence. The lampstand and the table, we have those two in view. Now just taking a look at the lampstand itself, or maybe what might be closer to what it would have looked like with the priest there. There is the menorah or the lampstand. Those familiar with the tabernacle, as we look at this, say, oh, I know about that. I know about the lampstand. It's on the right. But the more we know about the tabernacle, the more chapter 24 is really confusing. 
There's a lot more to the tabernacle than the lampstand and the table with bread. Why does Moses talk about them here? He could have talked about the lampstand and the table of bread and elsewhere where he talks about them. And in Exodus, they were all kind of grouped together. All of the pieces are described in their making and in God's instructions. Why not put it there? Why put it here? The answer, I think, is this passage connects to the Sabbath context on either side. And we need to recognize that the symbolism of the lamp somehow connects to sacred time and to standing in the presence of God, meeting with Him on the Sabbath. The lamp pictures God's glorious presence at the tabernacle where the Israelites would meet with God at their Sabbath observances. Now, this lamp could mean a lot of things. There could be an immense amount of symbolism in it. But one thing it certainly indicates is the shining presence of God. As is reflected in, for instance, Psalm 27, the Lord is my light. Or in the blessing of the priest described in number 6, the Lord cause His face to shine upon you. It's interesting when we go back to Exodus and the scene at Mount Sinai, in chapter 20, verse 21, we find this phrase, Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Think on that. Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. From the mountain to the tabernacle, the thick darkness and the separation now a glowing light. Coming here on Sabbath brought God's people into the glowing presence of God. Make it up in your own mind, but imagine a movie. And the the picture, the scene that's there and the sounds that are hitting you is of a midnight storm. It knocks out all electricity. The town is dark. There's loud claps of thunder that shake the earth. And it's really foreboding and loud and scary and kind of concerning and you can't really see what's going on in the darkness. And then the scene shifts to a small apartment in that same town, darkened, with a family gathered in a little living room. Mom is just finishing lighting candles, of which there are several around the room, and Dad is reading a story to two kids with their heads leaning on his chest as they lay sprawled out on the sofa. Just think emotionally of how that takes you from this one scene to this other. This is what we're seeing. This is how the drama shifts here at chapter 24. It's taking us from the thunderous mountain, the shaking earth, the darkness that shields God in this moment and now just brings us into the living room with the candles glowing and the warmth of the presence of the Lord in the life of people who are reconciled to Him on His terms. The sacrifices of God providing that way in as the sacrifices die in the place of sinners. The priests representing the people and bringing them before God here in this place now. 
is the glow of God's presence symbolized by the light of the lamp that doesn't go out, that burns through the night and shines the Lord's face upon His people. And that follows then with the second matter here in verse 5, the bread on the table. You shall take fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. So just looking at the graphic again, at the cutout, we're now looking at this table on the right side. So the glow of the lamp stands shining upon this table on the right, looking something like this. And if you wonder why the pictures all vary, because we're just taking a guess, just looking at the measurements and and the materials and the like, and this is something of a guess. In fact, these loaves may be a bit small, even from what we find here uh, in verse 6. They were very sizable loaves placed upon this table. And when we read of 12 loaves in two stacks of six, it seems fairly apparent that this is in some sense a representation of the 12 tribes of Israel. And that seems to be, again, why this is sectioned right here in chapter 24, that the glowing presence of God is shining upon God's people. It's a picture of His provision. It's a picture of fellowship, all of it. But here, perhaps particularly, the twelve tribes of Israel. Verse 7, You shall put frankincense on each pile, and it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. And every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. Every Sabbath, the renewal of the bread, every Sabbath symbolizing the renewal of Israel, Sabbath by Sabbath communing in the presence and the light of God. It comes from the people, as does the olive oil that fueled the lamp. Likewise, the people supplied the ingredients for the bread. And this is in itself an intriguing line. We won't take time to chase very long. But how the people were the ones that voluntarily made the supplies, the materials available for the construction of the tabernacle and all of its pieces. And the people providing the ongoing ritual there. God calling upon His people to supply for the priests and to supply for His worship in this way, and they willingly doing so. Verse 9, And of course that bread shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. From inside the tabernacle now, the text moves outside as the scene shifts from worship in the glow of God's presence to a defiling act of rage in the camp. And again, the arrangement, I think, is very purposeful. We move to outside the camp as we come to verse 10. There's a parallel here with chapter 10. Nadab and Abihu are executed by God. Those, they were priests who violated God's holiness at the tabernacle. And here we find a similarly defiant act against God in the camp. So we come outside of the tabernacle into the camp. 
Said another way, the renewal of God's people in the glow of His presence at the tabernacle is intended to translate into everyday life. Well, here at verse 10 is a place where it does not. And what will God do? Verse 10. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel, and the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. We'd certainly like more details. What were they arguing over? Why were they fighting? How far did this fight go? What was the point? All we know is a man gets in a fight with somebody, and in the midst of the fight, he defiles God in the process. He defies his name. He blasphemes the name. This means he treated God's name with contempt. He defied the Lord in the midst of this argument. He cursed, a parallel idea probably to blaspheming. Some translations, perhaps yours, read something like he blasphemed the name with a curse. Not that it's two separate, entirely separate ideas. But please understand, this isn't that he slipped with a curse word. Or that he slipped using God's name in vain. Rather, he defied God's name that represents God's very person. The neighbors of Israel worshipped idols as the visible image of their God. God did not give Israel an image of Him. That's the one thing we don't find in the tabernacle, is an idol, an image of God, made out of pure gold like the other pieces. We don't find that. That's not what's behind the inner sanctum. What's there is a box. What's there is a seat. What's there are angels that form the seat of God's presence hovering there. You can't picture it. You don't turn it into an idol. What God gave to His people was His name. Yahweh, the God who is Morales, quoting von Rad, says, In giving them his name, Yahweh had given Israel himself. Along with the ever-present help and benediction, such access in his presence opened. This was his name. This was the person of God, the presence of God in some sense. And this man blasphemed that name. Verse 11, continuing, Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelomith and the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. It was clear that a terrible crime had been committed. But how should this man's sin be prosecuted? They're not sure just how bad the sin is. What God will do with this individual. And so they wait. And they hold him. Verse 13, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. Throw stones at him until he's dead. It was indeed a horrible crime. They lay their hands on his head as witnesses that this man has defied the living God. It was a capital offense. And God continues with discussion, verse 15, as he speaks 
and calls Moses to speak, verse 15, to the people of Israel, saying, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. This is one idea that the book of Leviticus makes very, very clear. You cannot defy God and live. The judgment that befalls this man may strike you as cruel. It may strike you as barbaric. It's not. What it is presented here as is a punishment that fits the crime. It's a punishment, in fact, to which we are all liable because we have all defied the name of God. Now, the law under which we live is not this law. And God may delay His judgment until eternity, but we're all under the same sentence. It may hit us as barbaric and cruel and unusual punishment. This is not unusual punishment. And again, getting back to the point, it's not merely using God's name in vain, although this is indeed sin. And I say this simply by way of teaching. But we have a phrase in this culture that is among the top used phrases, and that is, oh my God. This is said over and over and over again. It's said so often that even God's people sometimes use it. It's just a meaningless expression, most would say, when we just say, oh my God. We're using it to show surprise, which is self-oriented. Not that it's evil, but it's just self-oriented. I'm surprised. So I use his name this way to show how surprised I am. We use it to show happiness, as sick as that is. We use it to show shock or humor, and we draw attention to ourselves, and we use the name to get something accomplished in communicating with other people, and what we do is sin. Now we'll debate about, oh my gosh, I don't see it as substantially different, but be cautious. Be aware. Everybody says it. It's not for God's people to say it that way. There is a way to use God's name that is appropriate, and I would say there is a way to use the phrase, Oh my God, that is appropriate. It's a phrase we should be using all the time in our prayers. My Lord and my God. But when we use it to be dramatic to express our own emotions, to impress someone else, to make someone laugh. What we are doing is using God's name for personal advantage, and that's wrong. That's a sideline, a word of instruction to us in a culture that bends us the other way. But coming back to it, that's not what this man did. 
what he did was in some sense a defiant act against the Lord. And while we don't have a lot of details, that seems clear. This is the same ilk as what Jesus calls the sin against the Holy Spirit in Matthew chapter 12. It's not a slip of the tongue which can lead to confession and forgiveness. What it is is a defying of his authority and a rejection of his person. When the human heart defies God, the only fitting punishment is judgment. Now again, where we cross that line may be very difficult to perceive. But we need to be very cautious that we not cross it. That we not turn against the one name in which there is salvation and defy that name and cross the line of no return. Where all that we receive is judgment. This man did that. And every one of us is liable to the same punishment. If not in this life, then in the next. This leads to a short excursion on crimes and punishment, which is occasioned by this man's execution. Again, it seems weird. It's a little bit out of line. Why go into this here? Putting it together, there's a direct connection. Notice verse 17 of 24, chapter 24. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Verse 17, the contrast with verse 16 is intentional. The community has killed is to kill the man. And God makes it clear you're not to kill people. So there are crimes that are capital, they are few, and one is defying the name of God. But don't go around thinking that you can just take people's lives as you wish. To take up someone's life means capital punishment under this law. The community killed the man who blasphemed, and that was God's will. But killing people made in God's image is not. God uses this man's crime then as an occasion to summarize an important principle of the law. And what is it? An eye for an eye, I don't think we should take literally. Two men get in a fight and one pokes out the eye of the other and so the one administering punishment takes him and pokes out his eye and the guy dies of an infection. It wasn't exactly equal punishment, was it? And if a guy is really, I mean, half his ears cut out, exactly where do you cut that ear and how do you do it? And is it really equal punishment? Can you ever get the suffering to be exactly the same and the injury to be exactly the same, however you construe it? No, we understand that's not possible. In fact, you could just see a lot of people losing teeth. If one guy lost one tooth and they knocked the other guys out and it actually took a second one with it, then the guy who's doing the punishment has to have his tooth knocked out. And if they take uh, two with him, I mean, you know, it just gets ridiculous. That's not the point. It's a figure of speech. If the perpetrator has committed a crime, the point is that the punishment should be fair. The penalty must match the crime. In some countries today, a man can steal an egg and have his hand cut off. That doesn't match the crime. The punishment is more severe than is honorable. 
In some countries, a woman, a married woman, can flirt with another man who's not her husband and be executed for it. Now, the guy that stole the egg and the wife who's flirting with another man are wrong. They should be corrected. They should not lose their life. That's what's at stake here. That's what's being discussed here. In our country, under certain circumstances, you can take someone's life and before very long at all be out of prison living your life normally. That's not right either. I don't begin to say, begin to pretend that I know how to work out all of this out. It's very complicated. But what God is saying is I'm a just God, I'm a holy God, and the punishment should fit the crime. You shouldn't draw back and you shouldn't go too far. When the human heart defies God, here's the whole point, you can stand in the glow of God's presence in communion, but when you cross a line in defiance of God, there is only one just punishment, and that is death. Don't cross that line is the point. This man did, and the only thing that could be done was for this message to be sent. You don't defy the name of God. It should apply, I think, certainly to our nation. It should apply to the laws of the nations of this world. It should apply within our families. You know who you are as parents. Sometimes the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Sometimes the punishment is too severe and sometimes the punishment is far from sufficient. We need to think in these terms because the holiness of God demands it. Under the Mosaic law, execution was a fitting punishment for defying Him and that's the point. It was an egregious sin. Now that punishment and that sin particularly is not applicable in our setting, in our time. God has moved past this law and the execution of those who blaspheme the name of God is not something that we should be seeking to resurrect in our setting and time. It's an entirely different program that God is following on that matter today. Coming back to 22 then, you shall have the same rule, and here's also the connector to this man, you shall have the same rule for the sojourner as for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed, and they stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. The man would have been considered because of his parentage a sojourner. It's an amazing statement. The rules of punishment relate directly to this blasphemer in this case, but they are also to relate then the same rule to the sojourner as to the native. That is, this law distinguished Israel from her neighbors. On a positive sense, here we see the severe sense. That is, sojourners, or we might use the word immigrants, are to be treated equally under the law because they are equally created in God's image. If they come in to dwell among you, then the law should not be used against them in a discriminatory manner. Sojourners, immigrants, are to be treated equally under the law because they live under the eye of the same God. And if you are using the law 
to abuse those who do not have the same status as those wielding authority, this dishonors God. It should not be done. Sadly, in this case, the law had to be applied equally in a severe way. So using law to create an unfair advantage for the powerful, the wealthy, the naturally born citizens is unpleasing to a holy God because He is the one King of the universe. And every law that we enact and every law that we enforce should be seen under that rubric. He is the King of the universe. And again, on smaller levels, within families, within the church, within our communities, we should pursue that justice, faithfulness. No matter who we are, however, define God as a death sentence. And this narrative is an ugly reminder of the consequences of choosing rebellion against God over communion with Him. Could the contrast be any more severe? There in the tabernacle, the glow of the lamp shining upon the table of bread, God's provision for His people, His presence, His goodness, His kindness to them. And then we shift the scene outside to the community laying hands on this man's head and stoning him with stones as he dies bleeding to death. What a contrast. The narrative before us is dramatic. But we have to be we must be reminded that there are many ways to blaspheme God. You can defy God's name by concluding that you can earn his favor in your own strength on the merits of your own righteous deeds. You can defy God by relying on a church to save you when Christ alone must save you. You can defy God by deciding He is not vital to your life or your future. He may be there, but it makes no real difference to you. You can defy God by deciding He is not vital to your life or your future. You can defy Him by loving a sin, a family, a job, or wealth in idolatrous ways. You can obviously defy God by claiming He does not exist when He gives you every breath you breathe and He will be the one that you meet in eternity. Please understand. Please know as I say these things, in His mercy, God can rescue people from defiant positions. We were all defiers of the name. And around this table as we've gathered here today, we come as those who cursed Him. But we come now as those who bless His name, who take His name upon our lips and rejoice in His presence and thank Him for His grace and His goodness. There's no one here that communes with God but was a defiant sinner. We may not recognize it. We may not see our sin. We don't see ourselves, most of us, with a hand lifted, a a fist shaking in God's face. But this indeed we have all done. And here we recognize the cost of our redemption. 
God can rescue anyone. He rescues those who defy His name. But there is a line that is crossed. And in the end, if you do not come to God on His terms, if you do not choose to turn from your sin and enter into fellowship with Him, judgment is your only future. This is the reality check that Leviticus forces us to face. The glow of the lampstand in the tabernacle and the defiant sinner suffering and dying. The truth is that if you defy God's name somewhere along the line, His patience will expire and you will face Christ as your judge. But the glowing lamp in the tabernacle, wow, how much more we have now. I mean, that's a beautiful picture of communion with God, but think of where God has brought the program in Christ. We have fellowship now with the living, risen Christ who said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. As the Sabbaths, the holy days of Israel developed and morphed, On this festival where Jesus made this statement, there were massive candelabras on the four corners of one of the courts of the temple and it sent light far away from the temple. They were so grand, burning so brightly. And Jesus stands in the midst of that and says, I am the light of the world. You will not walk in darkness any longer if you come to Me. Through His sacrifice, through His death in the place of the sinner, through His resurrection power, He serves as the light of the world. No longer then is God shrouded in darkness. But now we can commune in the light of our Savior, the light of the world. Those sinners, by trusting Jesus' sacrificial death in our place, we commune with Him who said, I am the bread of life. Commune with me and I will feed your soul. We can find rich sustenance in Christ and broadcast to a lost world that communion that we have with Jesus. Being reconciled to God through Christ is the ultimate joy in this life and the next. And gathering at this table is a statement that I find Him to be the bread of life for me. He is my life. He is my strength. He is my salvation. He is my hope. In all of this slogging along in this life as we sang earlier, but knowing there's a good day to come. There's a day of much greater communion in His presence that is yet to come until all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. I long for that day. That song went deep into me this morning. Till all the ransomed church of God, till all those who will come to Christ the Savior be saved to sin no more. It's not going to happen in this life. But passing into the next life for those who are in Christ We do not pass into the presence of a God who will judge us in our defiance, but we pass into the presence of a Savior who will receive us. 
and we then will be saved to sin no more. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, bring that day. I pray as a sinner, as a vile sinner, in the midst of a people of sin. But we pray, longing for that day when we will sin no more. And we pray also, not as vile sinners, period, but as vile sinners being progressively sanctified by the indwelling Spirit and the oil of gladness that burns in our soul draws us consistently and slowly into Your presence. Continue to sanctify and change Your people as we consider the truth of Your Word, the revelation of Jesus crucified, risen, and coming again. And for those who know not Christ as Savior, bring them out of the darkness into the light. Bring them out of their hunger to the bread of life. We pray that you do that today. We pray that you do that for the glory of your name. And that those in sin would come. And that those redeemed from it would rejoice. Through Christ we pray. Amen.